ಶಿಷ್ಯಂಕರಾಚಾರ್ಯಮಸ್ಯಪದ್ಮಪಾದಂಚಸ್ತಾಕಂಚಿಷ್ಯಂತೋಟಕಂತಿಕಾರಂ ಅನ್ಯಾನಸ್ಮದ್ಗುರುಸಂತತಮಾನೋಸ್ಮೀಶ್ರುತಿಸ್ಮೃತಿಪುರಾಣಸ್ಮದ್ಗುರುಸಂ
and we have just completed the Katho Upanishad. Um, the Upanishads are called Shruti Prasthana, the foundation based on the Vedas. Vedas are called Shruti, that which is heard, that which is literally that which is heard, that which was revealed by God to the sages and this, from the sages, rishis down to us. So that is the Shruti. Then there are the, other than the Vedas, all other religious texts are broadly called Smritis, literally that which is remembered. Smriti, literally that which is remembered. Now the Bhagavad Gita, forming part of the Mahabharata, is also a Smriti. It's a, uh, it's a section of the Mahabharata. So the Bhagavad Gita is also um, is a Smriti. And the Brahma Sutras, which, which we are concerned with today, they are called Nyaya. Nyaya literally means logic. There's a school of uh, Indian philosophy called Nyaya. But in general, Nyaya means logic. In Indian languages, now Nyaya also means justice. Um, so these three texts, Upanishads, which are actually a collection of texts, the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras, uh, are the Prasthanatraya, Triple Foundation. They also have special names. The Upanishads are called Shruti Prasthana, the foundation based on the Shrutis. The Bhagavad Gita is called Smriti Prasthana, the foundation based on the foundational text based on the Smritis. And the Brahma Sutras is called Nyaya Prasthana, the foundational text based on um, logic, reason, philosophizing. They serve different purposes. The Upanishads. The Shruti Prasthana are the root. They are the basis for everything in Vedanta. Vedanta, one of the definitions of Vedanta is Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. The source of spiritual knowledge called Upanishads is literally, the another name for it is Vedanta. However, the Upanishads themselves are, are revelations. They are poetic. They are, uh, um, you know, they are often cryptic. And uh, how do you apply them in life? you know, a worked out set of spiritual instructions, methodologies, paths, all of that Krishna does for us in the Bhagavad Gita. He is drawing upon the Upanishads. Sometimes in the Bhagavad Gita, he literally quotes the Upanishads. He quotes, for example, from the Kato Upanishad. Drawing on the Upanishads, he designs this uh, wonderful manual of spiritual life, the Bhagavad Gita. And it is justifiably very popular. If you have to take one book up from Hinduism, a representative book from Hinduism, it would be hands down the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but remember, Bhagavad Gita itself is derivative. It's based, its authority comes from the Upanishads. Uh, in Hinduism, it's interesting. The authority does not come from God. Uh, the, uh, the authority of Krishna is, the Gita is not that it was taught by Krishna. The authority of the Gita is behind Krishna stands the Upanishads. He is quoting from the Upanishadic uh, authority. Now, the Brahma Sutra, the third uh, part of this foundational text, is uh, called Nyaya Prasthana, the philosophical part of it. What it does is, it takes the same Upanishads and thinks about it philosophically. Because when you read the Upanishads, lots of questions will come. There are a variety of terms. It seems to say it's so many different things. What is the central message of the Upanishads? What do these various terms mean? How do you harmonize the various Upanishads into one coherent philosophy? And then the teachings of the Upanishads, um, what to establish the non-dual Vedantic teaching, 
Then you remember there are many schools of Hindu thought, all of which acknowledge the authority of the Vedas and of the Upanishads, but they give different interpretations. So you have to defend the Vedantic interpretation, you know, as against the other Hindu interpretations like the, uh, you know, Sankhya, the, um, you know, Yoga and Purva Mimamsa, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, all of which acknowledge Upanishads as a source. But still, you have to establish. But that's done by the Brahma Sutras. Also, there are many philosophers, many thinkers in ancient India who did not accept the authority of the Upanishads. So you can't quote, you can't say this is said by the Upanishad and therefore you accept it. Buddhists, the Jainas, the materialists, they don't accept it. So you have to use logic, uh, just sheer reasoning to counter the positions of uh, thinkers and philosophers who don't agree with the Vedantic conclusions. That's also done by the Brahma Sutras. Um, and also Brahma Sutras arranges the various practices found in the Upanishads and the ultimate result. What is the goal? Yes, moksha is the goal, liberation is the goal, but what's it like to be liberated? What, what's the point of all of this? All these issues are discussed in the Brahma Sutras. Upanishads, we know, they came from a variety of um, rishis, a whole range of spiritual teachers. Bhagavad Gita came from Sri Krishna. So whom did the, the Brahma Sutras come from? They came from, um, the author is Badarayana Vyasa. Vyasa. Now in tradition, sometimes this Vadarayana Vyasa is identified with Veda Vyasa, a very famous name in Indian, in Hindu thought, Veda Vyasa, the one who arranged the Vedic corpus into four collections of texts, the Rig Veda, the Yajur Veda, the Sama Veda, Tharva Veda. He, he didn't originate those texts, but he uh, organized it. So that's uh, legendary. He's also the author of uh, so many um, wonderful texts, notably the uh, ascribed to him, like dozens of huge works are ascribed to him. The Puranas, the, the you know, the Bhagavata, Mahabharata, and whatnot are ascribed to him. So, is it the same Vyasa who is the author of the Brahma Sutras? Um, traditionally, yes, but according to scholars, again, they will say there were two Vyasas, uh, or many Vyasas, in fact. Uh, so, Veda Vyasa, maybe one person. And Badarayana Vyasa may be another person, or they may be the same one. But anyway, if you want to know who's the author of the Brahma Sutras, it is uh, Vyasa, Badarayana Vyasa. What are these sutras? They uh, are the systematizations of bodies of knowledge. So at one time in uh, Indian thought, very ancient, long way back, long after the Vedas, the Vedas are the source, but then there's the age of philosophy. And at the beginning of the age of philosophy, you had the sutras, where these bodies of thought were systematized and collected into, you know, cryptic uh, aphorisms. So it was one way of compressing data. You know, in, in uh, modern computer science, you have the zip files. So zip files is, we'll take a lot of data, many files, and then pack it into one, which saves um, space. But the problem with these zip files is that you can't use them directly. You have to unpack them and then use them. You can't read them directly. Similarly, the sutras, they contain an entire system of thought into very short, very like packed sayings, aphorisms. But they have to be unpacked. Uh, and when you unpack them, they give rise to this enormous elaborate system of thought. 
So at the root of the schools of Hindu philosophy, you have sutras. Um, the traditionally the six schools of Hindu philosophy, Sankhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Purva Mimamsa and Vedanta. Um, so the Brahma Sutras are the Vedanta Sutras, the Sutras for Vedanta philosophy. Since we are all students of Vedanta, they are Sutras for us. If we want to know, you know, uh, a reasonable, coherent, philosophically well thought out presentation of Vedanta, you have to go to the Brahma Sutras. And just by the way, um, although I haven't taught it till now, hopefully I'll get around to it in a more systematic and thorough way sometime later. But just so that we know, you can't claim to be a student of Vedanta unless you've studied the Brahma Sutras. You can't say that I studied Vedanta. Yes, you must study the Upanishads and of course Bhagavad Gita, but Brahma Sutras also. Otherwise, you can't claim to know the philosophy of Vedanta. You can't say, I did Drik Drishya Vivek or listen to a couple of YouTube classes, so I know Vedanta. No, you have to study Brahma Sutra. So, for example, when we become monks, uh, sannyasis, it's sort of taken for granted that you have studied at least the first four sutras of Brahma Sutras. I'll come to that, how many sutras are there, but first four. It is, uh, there's a name for it, Chatus Sutri, the four sutras. Chatus means, Chatu means four, Chatur, uh, four, Sutra. Chatus Sutri, uh, so four sutras. So they will just ask you, so have you done the four sutras? The four, the, that means the first four sutras of the Brahma Sutras. Um, how many sutras are there? Oh, before that, just a little bit. So there are sutras for Nyaya. The Nyaya sutras, which are the basis of the elaborate, very complicated, very sophisticated system of Indian logic, Nyaya sutras. So the, the author of the Nyaya sutras was the sage Gotama. So Gautama Sutras or Nyaya Sutras, that's one. Then there are Vaisheshika Sutras. The author for the Vaisheshika Sutras was the sage Kanada. So he gave the Vaisheshika Sutras, which is formed the foundation of the Vaisheshika school of philosophy. Then there are Yoga Sutras. Those are very famous. Thanks to the proliferation of yoga schools across the world, especially here in the United States, even if those who are stretching and grunting and huffing and puffing in yoga studios, they don't study yoga sutras, but often the instructors are interested. So the instructors, the teachers, many of them are interested in learning a little bit of Sanskrit and so that they can study the yoga sutras. The yoga sutras were composed by Patanjali. Patanjali's yoga sutras. Those are pretty famous um, and they are studied extensively all over the world. Probably most famous of all these sutra literature. Then there is the Sankhya system is a little unique that way uh, because the original Sankhya Sutras, um, you know, which, which probably were composed by the sage Kapila, who's at the source of the Sankhya, the most ancient of all the systems. Even Buddha studied the Sankhya under his uh, teachers before he went on his own, then he became the Buddha. So the Sankhya system is the oldest. And Kapila, the founder of the Sankhya system, um, Vivekananda calls him the first philosopher of the human race. But, unfortunately, the Sankhya Sutras are lost. We don't have the original Sankhya Sutras. Um, there are Sankhya Sutras. If you search, you will find them. But there are a much later effort to reconstitute the Sankhya Sutras. They are not original. So those who study the Sankhya system may not actually even study the Sankhya Sutras. They study the earliest available texts, something like Ishwara, Krishna, Sankhya, Karika, and so on. Anyhow. Just enough for us to know that there were some original Sankhya Sutras at some time. And then there is the Purva Mimamsa system, 
uh, which was which is the system of Indian philosophy, Hindu philosophy, based on the ritualistic portion of the Vedas. So all of them accept Vedas as uh, you know revealed scripture. But the interesting thing is the Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, all of them, they only give lip service. Yes, yes, the Vedas are holy and all that, but we'll do our own thing. We'll think freely. Think They're more free thinkers. When you come to the Purva Mimamsa, they are Vedic scholars par excellence. They base their entire system as an interpretation of the Vedas. So Mimamsa, the word Mimamsa in Sanskrit means Pujita Vichara, which means, which translates into reverential inquiry a reverential inquiry into the into the vedas what today would be called hermeneutics interpretation of a text so they were experts in interpretation of the vedic texts trying to find out the meanings of those vedic ancient vedic utterances and how they could be used for vedic rituals so that was another system huge system um, there uh, they have a sutra literature and the Mimamsas, Purva Mimamsa Sutras were composed by the sage Jaimini. So Jaimini Sutras are Purva Mimamsa Sutras. I think more than 2,000 Sutras, much bigger than the Brahma Sutras or Vedanta Sutras. And finally, we have our text, which we are going to talk about today, which is the Brahma Sutras or Vedanta Sutras. They are the sutras for us students of Vedanta uh, philosophy. And they were composed by Badaraya and Abhyasa. So this is the big picture of the sutra system of uh, systems in Indian philosophy. Now, what did they do with these sutras? They wrote commentaries. Remember, these are very cryptic, very short sayings and very difficult to find out the meaning. So they have to be expanded upon, explained. And so commentaries and commentaries were written, explaining the meanings of the sutras. Now, the interesting thing which happened to the Vedanta was multiple masters came and wrote multiple commentaries on the same text, the Brahma Sutras. And therefore, gave rise, rise to several schools of Vedanta. So, Adi Shankaracharya comes along 1400 years ago. And he writes an extensive commentary on the Brahma Sutras. Um, just a little bit about the sutras themselves before we go into the commentaries. So, the sutras, the Brahma Sutras, they are 555 sutras. 555 sutras. Um little story, not, not very edifying, but funny enough. But funny enough for maybe Indians from a certain uh, generation. It works like this. Um, so a monk told me this story, and it's, it's a real story. He's in our, he was in our ashram in the Himalayas, in an ashram called Mayavati Ashram, established by Swami Vivekananda in the, uh, 1899. So there, this Swami, of course, was much later, not in 1899, uh, contemporary much more senior to me. So he told me this, this story that uh, um, one day in, in the ashram there, which is dedicated to the study of Advaita Vedanta, um, a very senior monk was visiting, very senior from monk of, of the order. And he asked the monks of the ashram, tell me. So they gathered together for discussion and study late in the night. It's in the Himalayas. It's very cold and cozy and late in the night. You gather around a fire maybe and talk. Um, so they asked, the senior monk asked the assembled monks, tell me, what is the, the uh, duty of a, of a monk? What is the duty of a monk? Now, I'll try to translate this. He, this monk who is a bit of a wit, you know, he answered wittily in Bengali. I'll try to uh, translate into English. 
Shadur Kartubuki, what is the duty of a monk? That was the question. And this monk, he replied immediately, 555 Shevon Parachorcha. Parachorcha means, literally if you say Parachorcha, it means criticism of the others, backbiting, talking behind their backs, being a gossip. And 555, this is something that only <laughs> Indians of a particular generation will know. Um, there was a cigarette brand called 555. So literally 555 Shevon means uh, it's a way of saying that smoking 555 cigarettes. The senior monk was outraged. He said, uh, why are you being so flippant? Uh, you think this is funny? And then this monk said, Swami, if you permit me, I will explain. So Paracharcha, literally it means, uh, para means the other, uh, but it also means the transcendent. So dwelling or discussing the transcendent, it, it, you, can, you can interpret in two ways. One is discussing, you know, gossiping about others or discussing the transcendent, paracharcha. <laughs> so that, that's the duty of a monk, first duty. And second duty, 555-7 means not smoking the 555 brand of cigarettes, but the 555 sutras of the Brahma sutras uh, to uh, contemplate those 555 sutras. Then the senior Swami was very pleased with him and said, you're quite, you're quite the wit. <laughs> Anyway, so there are 555 sutras. You might, say, you might think that's a lot. But, um, the, for example, there's a grammar sutras of Patanjali, which is uh, a panini, which is even bigger. Um, the, as I mentioned, the Jaimini sutras of the Purva Mimamsa system, that is uh, near, more than 2,000 sutras. So these are much bigger. Still, it's quite big, about thrice the size of uh, the Yoga sutras, three or four times the size of the Yoga sutras. Um, 555 sutras divided into four chapters. So Brahma sutras have four chapters. The four chapters are some, I will explain the meaning, Samanvaya chapter 1, Avirodha chapter 2, Sadhana chapter 3, Phala chapter 4. So Samanvaya means harmonization. So to remember what these Brahma sutras are, they are all dwelling on the Upanishads. So the first chapter deals with how do you harmonize the, the sentences of the Upanishads, the texts of the Upanishads, and arrive at a coherent philosophy? That's the um, objective of the first chapter. That all of it teaches you that you are Brahman. It's all about Brahman, the ultimate reality, and it teaches you that you are Brahman. You have to show that. You have to argue it out. So that's the first chapter. The second chapter is Avirodha. No, that is non-contradictoriness. You have to show that this philosophy that you are setting forth, that Brahman is, is the ultimate reality um, and you are none other than Brahman, which, which is the Advaitic way of uh, interpreting, that you have to establish that this is the correct interpretation of the Upanishads, not what the Sankhyans say or the Yoga philosophy says or the Nyaya philosophy, the Nyayikas and Vaisheshikas are pluralistic, the Sankhyans are dualistic. But you have to establish that non-dualism is the correct interpretation of these Upanishadic texts. And there you have to argue against a group of thinkers, spiritual teachers, philosophers, who believe in the Upanishads and the Vedas, the Vedic schools, Sankhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Purva Mimamsa. But you also have to argue against a group of philosophers, various schools of Buddhism, Jainism, and so on, who do not believe who do not accept the Vedas as a source of knowledge, as, as authoritative. So how would that make a difference? When you are arguing against uh, a group of 
thinkers, like the Hindu schools who accept the Vedas. You can always say that the Vedas say so, this is the meaning, and therefore it is done. Because you accept the Vedas and I accept the Vedas. All that remains is to show which is the correct interpretation of the Vedas. But the Buddhists, for example, you can't say the Vedas say so, therefore it is true. The world was is an appearance of Brahman. Who says? If you say the Vedas say so, and I can show you how the Vedas say so, Buddhists say that leaves me un unmoved because I don't believe in your Vedas. You have to show through reason, through uh, logic. So these various thinkers are there. Those are the arguments against those thinkers. A lot of debating goes on. That's the second chapter. Then the third chapter deals with various spiritual practices, which will take you to the goal, the realization of Brahman. Now you might think, ah, that's the chapter for me. You will be disappointed because many of these practices there deal with the Vedic karma and upasana, which are sort of outdated, outmoded now. Nobody performs those. Nobody knows how to perform them. They're mostly theoretical discussion. Mostly, not all of them. Some of them are very important. And even when they're discussing spiritual practice, the approach is a more academic, philosophical inquiry into those practices. Um, not actually step-by-step -step in how-to instructions. Those are different texts. Then finally comes the phala, the fourth chapter, which tells you about the result, which is moksha. What is this moksha? Um, the sequential liberation, krama mukti, sadhya mukti, liberation here and now, jivan mukti, liberated while living in this, this body. All of these things are discussed. That's the end. So this is the Brahma Sutras. Four chapters, 555 sutras. And each of the chapters is divided into four sections each. So four chapters, four sections each translates into 16 sections. And each of the sections has uh, topics. Topics. They are called Adhikarana. Adhikarana means topics. So each of these topics, usually they take up one Vedic sentence, for example, one Upanishadic sentence, and then they debate about it. Uh, what's the meaning of this Upanishadic sentence? Um, there is a Purva Paksha, which means an opponent who gives some other meaning. And then we have we come in as Vedantins and we give our meaning. And then we show that our meaning is logical and should be accepted. So this is how it goes. Um, now, so Shankaracharya came in and he wrote his commentary. You know, you need to expand on these sutras and explain them. So Shankaracharya explained it. It's called Shankaracharya's commentary, Brahma Sutra Bhashya, or Vedanta Sutra Bhashya. Um, another name is Shariraka Sutras, Shariraka Sutra Bhashya. Um, another name is Uttara Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa means the earlier inquiry into the earlier portion of the Vedas. Uttara Mimamsa means an inquiry into the later portion of the Vedas. The, the, the last portion, last portion is Upanishads. Um, and Shankara, in his commentary on the Brahma Sutras, gave a non-dualistic interpretation to Vedanta. And therefore, this is the Shankara's commentary on the Brahma Sutras is the philosophical basis of our school that bears repetition. Shankara's commentary is very important, philosophically speaking. Um, so philosophically, you need to refer, if you have questions, you need to refer back to Shankara's commentary on the Brahma Sutras. That is the Advaitic, non-dual interpretation, the non-dual school, our school. But that's not the only school. Along comes uh, Ramanujacharya, a couple of hundred years after Shankara. And he gives a different interpretation of the same text, the same Brahma Sutras. And uh, he writes this commentary called the Shri Bhashya, where he rejects Shankara's non-dualistic interpretation and gives 
what is called a qualified monistic interpretation, Vishishtadvaita. So he's the master uh, interpreter for Vishishtadvaita. See, these masters were called Acharyas, the masters. To be an Acharya in that sense, you have to write an interpretation, a commentary on the Brahma Sutras. That was the technical meaning of Acharya. Any, any spiritual teacher is called an Acharya or the teacher. But really in Vedanta, the original Acharyas are those who wrote commentaries who were at the source of each of these schools. So Shankara is the Acharya for the Advaita Vedanta system, Shankara Acharya. He wrote the um, non-dualistic interpretation of uh, Vedanta Sutras. Ramanuja is the Acharya for the qualified monistic or Vishishtadvaitic system. He wrote the Sri Bhashya, the commentary, interpreting the same Brahma Sutras uh, in accordance with Vishishtadvaita philosophy. Along came Madhvacharya, uh, and he gave a dualistic interpretation of uh, the same Brahma Sutras. He wrote what is called the Purna Pragya Bhashya, uh, another commentary interpreting in, in a dualistic way. And then there were others also, well-known system builders. All of them, they were the head of, uh, the source of the, not the systems themselves, but the commentaries, the interpretation of the Brahma Sutras. Um, Shankara, Ramanuja, Madhva, then comes Nimbarka Acharya, uh, who wrote the commentary, which becomes the basis for the uh, Dvaita Dvaita system. Uh, then comes Vallabha Acharya, who wrote a commentary on the Brahma Sutras, which becomes the basis, commentarial basis for the Shuddha Dvaita system. Um, then there comes um, Baladeva Acharya, who wrote a commentary called the Govinda Bhashya, which becomes the commentarial basis for the system of Achintya Veda Vedanta, which is the philosophical basis for the um, ISKCON, for the, the Hare Krishnas, for example. So all of these texts are there. And each of them, each of these comment commentaries has sub-commentaries and sub-sub-commentaries. So multiple, let's say, for example, in the Advaita Vedanta system, there are many, many, many texts. All right, so this gives you a background of um, what are we talking about, the text which we are talking about. We are concerned here with the Brahma Sutras and Shankara's commentary on the Brahma Sutras. Now, the Shankara in his commentary on the Brahma Sutras, instead of starting as is the practice, start with the first sutra and start explaining it. Instead of that, he starts with a preliminary, an introductory essay, an introductory essay. Um, this essay is called Adhyasa Bhashya, the commentary on superimposition. Adhyasa, superimposition. Bhashya, commentary. Superimposition here, what, what does superimposition mean? So the, literally the Sanskrit word Adhyasa, it can be split into two parts. Adhi, Asa. Adhi means on top of. Asa means to put. So to put on top of, to put something on top of the other. But remember, it's not literally putting something on top of the other. It's not putting uh, a book on top of a table or something like that. It's rather um, mistaking one thing for another. So there's a rope, the classic example. And we don't know the rope as a rope, but we know it. We make a mistake and we think it's a snake. Now, that's the case of superimposition. It's not imposition when you put something on the other. It's not that there's really a rope and there's really a snake and you put that poor snake on top of a rope. <laughs> Um, there's a funny story about non-dualists and their snakes and ropes. This man went to a non-dualist school of monks discussing Vedanta. Then he came back to his village and they asked him, 
what, what do you see there? Oh, it's a good ashram and the monks, uh, they study um, Vedanta, but they have a problem in that ashram. They have a problem in the monastery. What's the problem? They have a problem with snakes. There's this snake which gets on top of a rope and they have to somehow drive it away. And next day it's again on top of the rope and that thus it goes. Well, there's not really a snake. Superimposition means mistaking one thing for the other. Something that is not there appears there. It's a rope. There's no snake there, but we mistake it for uh, a snake. It is God alone, Brahman alone. It's existence, consciousness, bliss, this entire universe. We mistake it for a physical, external universe and ourselves for little physical body-mind. So physical universe, we are body-mind, experiencing a physical universe, living in the middle of a vast, separate physical universe. This is the snake. What's the rope? What's the reality? It's Brahman. It's existence, consciousness, bliss, and you are that existence, consciousness, bliss. So this is superimposition, an error, a mistake. The mistake is a very nice word. To take things as they are is the truth. To mistake things is superimposition. To take a rope as a rope is the truth. To mistake, mistake a rope for a snake is an error. To see Brahman everywhere, to realize that it is Brahman, I am Brahman, and this is one unlimited existence consciousness, please, though it appears differently, that is truth. But to think, not to see Brahman, not to realize it's Brahman, but to see that we are all limited mortal creatures, and here is a vast physical universe, and that's it. This is an error. This is called mistake. And this is adhyasa or superimposition. Where does this come in? Why? For that, let's take a quick look at the four sutras. I mentioned the four sutras. So if you are going to study the Vedanta Sutra, Brahma Sutras, at least the four sutras. So today we'll take a quick look at the four sutras and we'll make a beginning with the uh, Adhyasa Bhashtiya. First, the four sutras. And it's easily stated. Uh, the first sutra is Atato Brahma Jigyasa. What does that mean? Hence, therefore, inquiry into Brahman. Atha means hence, Atha means um, therefore, Brahma, Brahman, the ultimate reality, Jigyasa, desire to know. Atato Brahma Jigyasa, hence, therefore, inquiry into Brahman. But what does that mean? What is hence and what is therefore and what is Brahman and what is this inquiry? If you want to know all that, then you have to go into the commentary by Shankaracharya. And he writes pages after pages of, uh, about that. But basically what he says this here, that's not our subject. Our subject is before this. But in order to know why he writes this introductory essay, which is so important, uh, we have to um, know the context. So the meaning of the sutra is pretty simple. Hence, um, hence means uh, having uh, gathered the qualifications necessary to be a spiritual seeker. So the, here comes the fourfold um, qualifications of a Vedantic student. Well, now you can see why it's important to know a little bit of Vedanta before you jump into the Brahma Sutras. Actually, the Brahma Sutras should be studied after studying the Gita, the um, Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, Brahma Sutras um, discuss what you have learned in the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. Primarily the Upanishads, of course, but then Shankaran his commentary often quotes the Bhagavad Gita also. So, the Gita also should be studied before the uh, Brahma Sutras. So, hence means you, you, have, you have to have the qualifications. Once you have the qualifications of being a Vedanta student, the Viveka, the, the discernment of the eternal from the non-eternal, 
vairagya, dispassion from the non-eternal for samsara, the sixfold qualification, the disciplines, you know, shama, dhamma, uparati, titiksha, um, then uh, samadhana, shaddha. I'm not going to explain those. And then finally, mumukshutvam, an intense desire for freedom. Once we have that, that's, that's the meaning of hence. <laughs> so it has to be expanded into all that. Then next word is therefore. Wherefore, why? Because, uh, Shankara will explain, this entire samsara does not give us fulfillment. We have been trying to get fulfillment, satisfaction, you know, get, find the meaning of life, find some ultimate purpose to life, overcome suffering, find happiness. None of it is working. And now we are being promised, if you are enlightened, if you are spiritual, you will get fulfillment, you will transcend suffering, you will find out the riddle of this, um, you know, the answer to this question, what is this life, what's the point of it all? All of that is promised. Therefore, uh, hence, therefore, what do I do? An inquiry into Brahman. Literally, the word says jigyasa. Jigyasa means desire to know. So now, desire to know cannot be an instruction. Why not? Why, why not? why can't it be an instruction? It's like eating. Somebody can tell you to eat the food. That's fine. But nobody can tell you, be hungry. You can't be hungry. You, can eat, you either feel hungry or you don't feel hungry. But you can eat the food anyway. So nobody can tell you, you should desire to know Brahman. You can try to know Brahman. You can read the books and all attend classes. But you either have the desire or you don't have it. So the meaning of this desire to know Brahman uh, effectively translates into enquiry. In Sanskrit, vichara. Brahma jigyasa is equal to Brahma vichara. Inquir desire to know Brahman effectively means enquire into Brahman. How do you enquire into Brahman? Again, Vedanta tells you, shavana manana nididhyasana. Listen to it, contemplate it, meditate upon it. Listen means turn up for the classes, read the books, uh, contemplate means question it. Brahma Sutras are very useful here. Brahma Sutras are meant for contemplation. Um, in fact, go back to the four uh, uh, chapters of the Brahma Sutras. One Acharya point, master points out, notice the first chapter is about the meaning of the Upanishadic verses. To get a coherent message out of it. Um, Samanvaya. So it is Shavana. It is based on hearing. It's based on your study of the, of the Upanishads. The Brahma Sutra first chapter depends on knowing about Brahman. Then, uh, um, you know, reading, studying, etc. The second chapter of the Brahma Sutras is Avirodha, debates, arguments. It is Manana. It's based on contemplation, reasoning, the second part of the Vedantic process. The third chapter is Sadhana, practice. And a part of that is meditation. So it is Nididhyasana. Third chapter is Nididhyasana, based on Nididhyasana. Fourth chapter is Phala, result, which is um, Brahma Sakshatkara, the direct realization of Brahman, leading to moksha, liberation. So all of Brahman is actually, all of Vedanta is actually there in the four chapters that way. You know, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Anyway, back to our uh, inquiry. So inquiry into Brahman means, vichara, inquiry, it means Shavana Manana Nididhyasana. All right. This is in brief the meaning of the first sutra. But again, this is oversimplified. I'm just presenting to you what will take a few classes to explain if you take Shankara's commentary. Now another question arises. So each of these sutras is linked. A question arises. So inquiry into Brahman. I understand. Hence, therefore, inquiry. Good. 
But what is this Brahman? I mean, you want me to inquire into X, but what is X? You have to explain what is X, what is Brahman? So the next sutra tells us what is Brahman. Sutra number two. Janmadhyasya yataha. Janmadhyasya yataha. It means birth, creation, etc. of the universe from which. Brahman is that from which the universe arises, in which the universe stays, into which the universe dissolves. So that's how Brahman is, uh, is defined. How do you define it? They will draw. So remember, all of Brahma Sutras is basically they will draw from Upanishads. So, so there are dif different Upanishadic texts which tell you um, from which all these beings have sprung, in which they all dwell, into which they dissolve at the end of time. So this is, that is Brahman. So that is an indirect way of referring to Brahman. Uh, but anyway, that's a definition of Brahman. You know, our question was, what is this Brahman I'm supposed to inquire into? Answer is given in the second sutra. It is the that from which this universe has sprung. It's a good definition because um, Brahman seems abstract to us, but the universe seems very much present to us. Here is this universe. Here I am, where all of us and everything here, where it has come from, in which it exists and into which it will finally dissolve. In Sanskrit, janmasthiti bhanga tad brahma. Um, in Sanskrit it means uh, from that which this entire universe is born in which it exists and into which it is finally dissolved that is Brahman that's the definition of Brahman now this is the second sutra the third sutra will be how do you know Brahman is the source well how do you know because I hear the scientists are telling me Big Bang is the source of the universe and um, the Sankhyans are telling me Prakriti is the source, nature is the source of the universe, and somebody telling me that God has created the universe, and so on. So this Brahman of yours, how do I know it's the source of the universe? Why are you saying so? On what authority? Um, then the third sutra says, Shastra Yonitvat, from the source known as the Shastra, the scriptures. So again, all of these are dwelling on um, Upanishadic texts. The Upanishads tell us Brahman is the source of the universe. And therefore, uh, Brahman should be that which is to be inquired into. So the third sutra tells us, how do I know Brahman is the source of the universe? I know it from the Upanishads. Shastra Yonitvat. At this point, someone may again ask the question, suppose I don't believe in your precious Upanishads. Then second chapter for you. Second chapter is, <laughs> there's a section which deals with philosophers who don't believe in uh, the Upanishads or the Vedas. Now, at this point, another question may arise that um, Brahman is revealed as the source of the universe in the Upanishads. Mm, how do you know that? Because the Upanishads say so many different things. There are so many sentences in the Upanishads. And how do you know all of it tells you that Brahman is the source of the universe? And then the fourth sutra comes in. Tattu samanvayat. That means this conclusion, that Brahman is the purport of the Upanishads. The word two, two means as against the other views, you know, your Big Bang view or the Prakriti view or whatever. As against those views, it, Brahman as the source of the Upanishads, summon by art, by a harmonization, by finding out the purport, by um, a consensus of the Upanishadic texts. And here, the job of the Brahma Sutras and the commentator is to show 
how a variety of Upanishadic texts point to the purport. Altogether, they point to something. They're telling you something. They're telling you that Brahman is the ultimate reality. And so that's a big job. So many, many sutras will go, you know, take up different Upanishadic statements and show how it all fits in. It fits together. So this fitting together is the big task that is taken up in the first chapter of the Brahma Sutras. That's why it's called Samanvaya, the harmony of the Upanishadic texts. Well then, good. Congratulations. You have studied the first four sutras. Atato Brahma Jigyasa. Hence, therefore, inquiry into Brahman. What is Brahman? Janmadhyasya Yataha. That from which the universe originates, etc. Origination, etc. of the universe is from which? That is Brahman. How do you know that? Shastra Yonitvat, from the source called the Shastras of the scriptures. But the Shastras say so many things. How do you know the Shastras say Brahman? Tattu Samanvayat, Brahman is revealed uh, as um, the source of the universe by a harmonization of the various sentences of the Upanishads. Okay. Well and good. So why did Shankara write an introduction on superimposition? Where does superimposition come in? We have to go back to the first sutra. The first sutra says, hence, therefore, an inquiry into Brahman. Now, an inquiry, what does an inquiry do? An inquiry gives rise to knowledge, any kind of inquiry. I ask questions and I read a book and I think about it, I inquire, I try to find out something and I get knowledge. That's what an inquiry can do. So you're saying that knowledge of Brahman can accomplish this, that this liberation from suffering, um, you know, realization of the ultimate good, all of this can be realized by knowledge. Yes, that's what we are claiming. But the knowledge can only remove ignorance. You see, knowledge can only remove ignorance. Knowledge cannot do anything else. Knowledge can free you from a bondage. Knowledge can free you from limitation, bondage, from your suffering, only if that suffering, bondage, limitation is based on ignorance. It's not a real suffering, bondage, or limitation. Rope snake example. Um, by mistake, I see a snake, with, and I'm scared of it. Now, the solution to this problem is to see that it's a rope. It's not a snake. The solution to this problem is to not to chase that false snake around with a stick, you know, or to call a snake charmer. No, it is to see that it's not a snake. It's actually a rope. It's an inquiry into the real nature of what appears to me and to find out what, what it is that it's a rope. That inquiry will reveal to me it's not a snake and I'll be freed from the problem of the snake. Why did that inquiry of uh, and the knowledge of the rope help you? Because it was not a real snake. The problem was based on ignorance of the rope and the knowledge of the rope solved the problem for me. If it had been a real snake, then any kind of knowledge wouldn't do. You still have to do something to drive away the snake or trap the snake or something like that or call a snake charmer or what have you. But since it's not a real snake, it's a product, it's a mistake. You've taken a rope to be a snake. Then the thing to do is not to mistake it, to correct that mistake. And the only way a mistake can be corrected is by knowledge. And the only way the knowledge can come is through inquiry. Hence, therefore, an inquiry into Brahman. The the claim, the huge, big claim is our bondage, our problems are a mistake. That you think this is a vast, uncaring universe separate from you. Mistake. 
that you think you are a mortal body born aging and going to die very soon mistake that you think you are this person a mind embodied mind um, suffering ups and downs and depression and harassment and anxiety and fear for the future mistake big mistake then this mistake must be based on some kind of uh, ignorance mistakes come from ignorance so here also mistake comes from ignorance just as thinking it to be a snake is a mistake it came from ignorance ignorance of what ignorance of the rope here mistake of being a samsari a jeeva and strapped in samsara comes from a mistake based on what ignorance ignorance of what that i am brahman that i am brahman so and therefore knowledge of brahman is required that i am brahman this knowledge is required this knowledge will remove my ignorance about my real nature as brahman and it will correct the mistake that i am a samsari a limited sentient being a jeeva it will correct that mistake i will realize what i truly am and that will solve my problems so this is the big question that's why knowledge is necessary since knowledge is necessary hence therefore an inquiry into brahman now you see why this adhyasa bhashya is situated at the beginning of the brahma sutras a question is raised in the brahma sutras you have to explain the sutras why is shankara not explaining the sutras what is this superimposition so shankara is preparing the stage for the first sutra the answer to this objection is shankara is preparing the stage for the first sutra why an inquiry what good will an inquiry do an inquiry will give rise to knowledge so what good will knowledge do knowledge will remove ignorance what good what ignorance and what will that do it will correct the mistake the adhyasa the superimposition that we are not bodies and minds we have taken ourselves to be bodies and minds we are not limited birth and death happiness and misery we are unlimited existence consciousness bliss so this mistake has to be corrected all right this is the big claim now shankara then has to establish you can't just say it you have to show that there is a mistake is there really a mistake can there be a mistake so that is the first uh, the, the adhyasa bhashya this is the subject matter of the adhyasa bhashya um we will since the time is running out we should start reading it a little bit let's read a little bit i have given you three handouts one handout is uh, the text of the adhyasa bhashya i think it was study material used by the chinmay mission or some organization but it's nice uh, it's easily available on the net so i download it from there uh, it it has in the first page there will be some shanti mantra some mantras for uh, chanting but after that the text of the adhyasa bhashya starts and there there is a uh, introduction also and there is a translation but the translation we will use is the second Uh, Asha Vidya Gurukulam. Yes, that was the text used by the Asha Vidya Gurukulam. Then there's a second uh, uh, handout, which is an English translation of the Adhyasa Bhashya, and this is taken from Swami Gambhirananda Ji's book. Swami Gambhirananda Ji was the eleventh president of our order, a great Vedantic scholar, a prolific writer and translator. So he translated the Brahma Sutra commentaries of Shankara Acharya, including, of course, the introductory essay, the Adhyasa Bhashya. This is the book. um and i well remember this book this was this was the first book i borrowed from our ashram library when i became a brahmacharya a novice so when i became a monk i went to the library and i thought now it's the time to learn vedanta so i borrowed the shiniest biggest book on vedanta i could find this book and i was proudly walking away to my room 
when a monk saw me and he said, so what are you reading? And I showed him this book. It's called the Brahma Sutra Bhasha. I didn't know what it was. And the monk said, oh, good. You won't understand a word. And I got so scared, I went immediately and returned it to the library. But it's not so difficult. It's difficult. It's not so difficult. But you need to know a little Vedanta before you dive into this. So the second handout is the Swami Gambhiranga's translation of the Adhyasa Bhashya, the first portion of this Brahma Sutra Bhashya. And the third handout is an extensive commentary on the Adhyasa Bhashya by one of the greatest living pundits, scholars of Vedanta in the world today, Mani Dravid Shastri. Um, he is a great scholar uh, in Tamil Nadu, in, in Chennai, um, one of the greatest living scholars of Advaita Vedanta. And uh, um, the, he gave a series of lectures on the first four sutras of the Brahma Sutras. So it started with the Adhyasa Bhashya. And what you have is an English translation of his, I think his original lectures were either in Tamil or in Sanskrit. He mostly teaches in Sanskrit or Tamil. But we are lucky that uh, S.N. Shastri has translated his uh, Manidravi Shastri's um, original lectures from Sanskrit or Tamil into English and pretty lucid English. The importance of the third handout is there is a vast literature on the Adhyasa Bhashya. The Adhyasa Bhashya itself is quite difficult. So there have been many masters through the last 1,200 years who have commented, sub-commentaries, sub-sub-commentaries, um, which I'll mention next time. And those ones, um, I mean, it's really very difficult unless you are really um, you know, into it for years and years to study all of that. But what I find is Manidravid Shastri has drawn upon his encyclopedic knowledge of Vedanta and poured a lot of that, many of those arguments in simplified form in that, in, in that handout. It's about 26 pages long. So take your time with it. It's in the forms of questions, answers, objections, and refutations, and so on. But it all deals with the Adhyasa Bhashya. So these are the three handouts. When I read, I will read the original text of the Adhyasa Bhashya, and I will read uh, Gambhiranji's translation. Now we are going to jump into, before we end, we're going to jump into the Adhyasa Bhashya. This is, all this was an introduction. We haven't started yet. We're going to jump into the Adhyasa Bhashya. It's good to start reading it. Uh, I'll read the first sentence of the Adhyasa Bhashya. It's the most important sentence. And uh, it's basically an objection against this theory of error. That what you're saying, the, you know, it's like a rope and a snake. It isn't. It can't be. This is a real world. We are really bodies and minds. You know, and we are just this person. You can't correct it by studying Vedanta and then, you know, attain some kind of realization. It's, uh, that's far too, that sounds too simplistic or crazy. You're like, it's like saying you are in the Matrix movie. You know, you're trapped in some kind of simulation and you just need to snap out of it. You're in a dream. You just need to snap out of it. That's what Advaita Vedanta claims, actually. And so that's the task before us, to prove it. That first sentence, which we're going to read now, Professor J.N. Mahanti, Jitendranath Mahanti, who was a legendary figure in 20th century Indian philosophy, he taught here in the United States. He passed away last week. He passed away just last week. He was a great philosopher, very learned in both Eastern and Western philosophy. He was a master of Nyaya philosophy, of Vedanta philosophy. He was especially interested in the Adhyasa Bhashya. But he was also a master of Western philosophy. Um, he became quite an authority on Husserl's phenomenology. He went to Germany in Göttingen just after the first, uh, Second World War. And uh, he studied um, German philosophy, Kant, Hegel, and all that, especially Husserl. 
And nowadays you will find hardly any book on Husserl, Husserl's phenomenology. There'll be at least some citations from J.N. Mahanti. Anyway, that's the background. I met him several times. Once I met him at one of our ashrams, the Institute of Culture in Kolkata. And he told me, I still remember this. He said to me, Swami, in all my studies of Eastern and Western philosophical texts, I have never come across a more profound sentence than the first sentence of the Abhyasa Bhashya. The first sentence of the Abhyasa Bhashya. So I think that's a good build-up advertisement for that. Let's jump into it. I'll read the first sentence, the translation, and start the explanation, and then we'll stop because there's no time. So this is the Adhyasa Bhashyam. First sentence. Yushmadasmat pratyaya gocharayor vishaya vishayino tamaprakashavad virudhasvabhavayoho itaretarabhavanupapattav siddhayam taddharmanam apisutaram itaretarabhavanupapatti ityato asmat pratyaya gochare vishayini chidatmake yushmat pratyaya gocharasya vishayasya taddharmanam chadhyasaha taddviparyayena vishayina taddharmanam chavishayadhyaso Mithyeti bhavitum yuktam tathapi anyuanyasmin anyuatmakatam anyuanyadhanmangshadhyasya itaretara vivekena atyanta vivikthayo dharma dharmino mithyagyana nimittaha satyanrite mithuni kritya ahamidam mamidam iti naisargikoyam lokabhyavaharaha. Technically two sentences but should be read together. Now what does that mean? If that sounds incomprehensible, wait till you hear the English, English translations, even more incomprehensible. And Gambiranji is a very clear translator. It's the best, most precise English translation available. Let me read out the English translation. It being an established fact that the object and the subject that are fit to be the contents of the concepts you and we, respectively, and are by nature as contradictory as light and darkness, cannot logically have any identity, it follows that their attributes can have it still less. Accordingly, the superimposition of the object referable through the concept you and its attributes on the subject that is conscious by nature and is referable through the concept we should be impossible. And contrariwise, the superimposition of the subject and its attributes on the objects should be impossible. Nevertheless, owing to an absence of discrimination between these attributes, as also between substances which are absolutely disparate, there continues a natural human behavior based on self-identification in the form of I am this or this is mine. This behavior has for its material cause an unreal nescience and man resorts to it by mixing up reality with unreality as a result of superimposing the things themselves or their attributes on each other. I hope that made perfect sense. <laughs> All right. A little bit of explanation, and we'll take it up next time. But anyway, just a little bit of explanation. It's not all that difficult, actually. It's a pretty simple um, idea. Uh, the basic idea of superimposition is pretty simple. Just keep the rope and snake example in mind. Now, notice in the rope and snake, two things are mixed up. You can look at it from two ways. You can look at it from the perspective of the rope, or you can look at it from the perspective of the snake. Um, if you look at it from the perspective of the rope, what's happening is what is really there is being mistaken for something else. 
what's not there. Something is, the rope which is really there is being mistaken for a snake which is not there. So that's one way of looking at uh, superimposition or adhyasa. What's really there is Brahman, limitless existence, consciousness, bliss. But that seems to be hidden. And we seem to think that we are bodies and minds living in a material world. Another way of looking at adhyasa, superimposition, is from the perspective of the snake. It is an appearance, something false, which is, um, which is, which covers up or which is imposed upon uh, the reality. So um, the rope doesn't appear, and what what we experience is the snake. So from the perspective of the snake, and something false, illusory appearance that is presented to us. So the world, body mind is presented to us. Now the question here, it starts with an objection. You are trying to pull a fast one on us, the opponent says to the non-dualist. You're saying that it's some kind of illusion, some kind of dream, you know, some kind of like a you know matrix-like situation, and you just can snap out of it by realizing you're Brahman. Uh, you're saying that you, the pure consciousness, have somehow become mixed up with the body-mind. You don't know that you are pure consciousness, you are Brahman, and you think you are body-mind. But that's not possible. Because, just like you guys say, you non-dualists, your Drik Drishya Viveka, your um, Aparokshanubhuti, all those texts, don't you clearly say that the self and the not-self are so different? You are consciousness, and the not-self, body-mind world, they are all objects. You are like light. The material objects are like darkness. They are like, you know, the, Shankara uses the words tamah prakasha, but darkness and light. They are as different in darkness and light. You are the knower. The material world, body-mind is the known. You are unchanging. The body-mind continuously changes. You are the witness. The body-mind is the witness. How can two such absolutely different things be mixed up? A snake and a rope can be mixed up. You can make a mistake because the rope looks pretty much like a snake. And in darkness, it can be mixed up. So how is this possible? Uh, it's just not possible. And the qualities of each, um, you know, the, the quality of you, the self, is consciousness. Quality means your nature. Your nature is consciousness. The quality of this body-mind is it is um, insentient. It's an object. It's a thing. How can they be mixed up? Um, and how can you say that I am this body-mind, if you actually wear pure consciousness. And how can you say the body-mind is me, it is I? You know, this is the nature of, I am superimposed on the body-mind, body-mind is superimposed on me. When we say, who am I? This. What am I doing? I am saying that I am the body-mind. And if I ask, what is this? It is I. What am I doing? I am superimposing the body-mind on me. I am identifying body-mind with consciousness and I'm identifying consciousness with body-mind. We think of ourselves as conscious bodies, conscious body-minds. We, we do not see it separately. We don't see this clarity separately. And, it, and the question here is, is it possible? Is such a mistake at all possible? And the answer would be, you're right. Um, nevertheless, tathapi, nevertheless, we see it for, as a fact all the time. All our worldly activities, they all depend on mixing up our real nature with the material body-mind. The body-mind is an appearance. Remember, why are we saying it's appearance? In snake and the rope, two things are mixed up, but the two are not real. The rope is real. The snake is a mistake. There is no snake right there. There may be a snake elsewhere in the zoo or in the garden, but on the rope, there's no snake. Similarly, 
here it is only existence consciousness place it's not that there is a real world which is being somehow mixed up with existence consciousness place so you're making a huge claim that is existence consciousness bliss is real the world is not even real it's like an unreal snake and you are none other than that infinite brahman existence consciousness place is this at all logical is it possible and shankara says yes it's possible we are mixing it up all the time if you investigate you will see all our activities i am tall body is tall but i say i the conscious how can consciousness be tall but i say i am tall i have already taken myself to be the body uh, i am white or brown or black that's the body i am um hungry or thirsty that's prana uh, i am um uh, happy or knowledgeable that's the mind the emotions the intellect uh, and so on so i am in superimposing my, all of these upon me and that's how we work all our activities in the world karta bhokta gyata doer experiencer knower i am seeing all of you on the screen but then i have already imposed body mind eyes all of that on me the consciousness consciousness by itself is not a seer or a hearer or a smeller or a taster or even a thinker it's only in association with mind intellect senses body that we become knowers of things only in association with body we become doers i will go from here to central park how can consciousness go from here to central park it's only consciousness in association with body mind and with legs which can walk around to central park um i am um, you know suffering for the my past karma and suffering so much but how can consciousness suffer anything without a body and a mind it's body and mind you've done past karma and the results of past karma are coming to this body and mind i have somehow mixed myself up with the body and mind i think those were my actions these are the consequences of my actions actions and not only that i am actually suffering so to do things karta doer to experience pain or pleasure bhokta experiencer and to know things gyata even vedanta we need this superimposition this is a fact of our life but this superimposition also is the source of samsara and all trouble we need to understand what this superimposition is and if you thoroughly understand what superimposition is it will actually go away <laughs> that is the very purpose of this adhyasa bhashya thoroughly understood it disappears uh, and thoroughly investigated it will not stay don't worry you will still be able to do things and know things and enjoy or suffer things and yet you will be beyond it all it will help you to transcend it all all of this will become clear as we go along um a couple of points before i and maybe just one point you know vivekananda taught this many of us may not know literally this thing he was reading from shankara's uh, adhyasa bhashya here in upstate new york in thousand island park in 1895 inspired talks of vivekananda let me read and you will notice it sounds very familiar this is this is vivekananda teaching on saturday 6th july 1895 is i just read and you'll suddenly see it sounds pretty familiar according to shankara there are two phases of the universe one is i and the other is thou or you and that they are as contrary as light and darkness <laughs> so it goes without saying that neither can be derived from the other on the subject the object has been superimposed the subject is the only reality the other a mere appearance 
The opposite view is untenable. Matter and external world are but certain states or projections of the soul. In reality, there is only one. And so on. He goes, you will see he's like literally translating from um, Shankara's Adhyasa Bhashya, but also giving very in interesting in his own uh, unique way, interesting insights into Adhyasa Bhashya, which you will not get elsewhere. Very powerful insight. So there was a whole class um, on the Adhyasa Bhashya, 6th July. In, in uh, when Swami Vivekananda was there on Thousand, in Thousand Island Park. All right, we'll stop there. We'll take it up next time. Let me see the question answers and see how, what we can do. Gita Dev says, what is the difference between karikas and bhashyas? Karikas are in, usually in uh, verse form and um, they can be commentarial also, but a bhashya basically is an explanation of some text. So the Bhashya strictly has to explain, for example, Brahma Sutra Bhashya has to explain the sutras, the word-by-word -word sutras. That's why there's an objection against Shankara's Adhyasa Bhashya. What is it? Why is it a Bhashya? Why is it there at all? It's not explaining the sutra. The first sutra is Athato Brahma Jigyasa. And this commentary, you know, the self and the not-self, as distinct as light and darkness mixed up. What's it doing? Why is it a Bhashya at all? So Bhashya has to explain the sutra word by word. And the Karika can be many kinds. Of, like Karika can be like Gaudapada's Karika on the Mandukya Upanishad, where it, it explains the text, but doesn't do it word by word. It, it is an independent philosophical commentary. Karikas are basically philosophical verses. Could you give a short example how a ritual is explained in the sutras? Rituals are not explained in these sutras. Rituals are explained in the Jaimini Sutras, which are Purva Mimamsa Sutras. These sutras, the Brahma Sutras, deal with the Upanishads, which is the knowledge portion. The ritual portion is the preceding portion. Uh, and those rituals are, again, not like the rituals that Hindus do now. Uh, they are Vedic rituals, some of which are continued now. But uh, the, the Upasana, the, the puja we do of deities, Devata puja we do now, is a more modern form. The Vedic rituals were various kinds of... Uh, worship of, uh, of uh, Vedic gods and with um, specific fire sacrifices and chanting of certain mantras, Vedic, Vedic mantras. Gaurav says, the world is conceived in a mind, is private, and the conception only exists in a mind. It's filtered or biased by human mind centers. It seems Advaita is saying this mistake to see the conception of the world as real or, or truth. Is that is this correct? Do Ramanujan Madhu accept the world as conceived in a mind as real? Um, not entirely true. Shankara does not say that the world is entirely conceived by our mind and senses. There is some input coming from the external world. And then, of course, our mind and senses throw a layer over it. Because if you say entirely conceived in our mind, our senses, like dreams, it would become what is called subjective idealism. It would become like the Buddhist Yogacara Vigyanavada. They say the whole world is in your mind. We don't say that. We say our individual minds and bodies are part of this world. You are seeing a subjective view of the world, but the world is also existing. You, the, the individual body, mind, and the world, both are appearances in Brahman. It's not that this world is an appearance in your mind. World, mind, both are appearances in you, the consciousness. Bill, a snake looks like a rope. Does the universe look like Brahman? No, not at all. But this is a big question, and this, these things will, will uh, come up next time. Objections against superimposition. They will 
multiple objections will come against superimposition. This idea of superimposition adhyasa doesn't work. Why not? Well, first of all, there must be similarity. A snake and rope looks pretty much similar. Uh, how similar is um, pure consciousness and this material world? It utterly dissimilar. And you just said so. See, you walked into the trap. You just said they're like light and darkness, utterly different. <laughs> so you Vedantins, don't you say? Um, the Drig Drishya seer and the scene, how different they are. Uh, so they are utterly different. How can there be a mixing up, a confusion, a superimposition, a mistake if they are so utterly different? That is one objection. Another objection is the rope and the snake are pratyaksha. They are they are perceptible. They are things in front of you. You can mix. You can make mistake one object for another object. How can you mistake the subject for an object? That's so strange. That's the second objection. The third objection is uh, that. Um, the rope is unknown. Then you see it as a snake. You don't see it as a rope as a rope. But the self is known. I exist. I know that I exist. How uh, something known cannot be mistaken. If you know the rope as a rope, how you wouldn't mistake it for anything else. So ignorance is necessary for an error. But in the case of this self, I know. I am the self. I am Sarva Priyananda. And here is this world. Both are known. How can there be a mix mixture? Then another objection would be very interesting objection. You see a snake on a rope because you have seen a real snake. A real snake some other time. Therefore, you make a mistake. Yes, we admit this is not a real snake. It's mistaken. The rope is mistaken for a snake. But you have seen a real snake. That's why the impressions are in your mind. And therefore, you make a mistake about it. But that means if you make a mistake about it, there must be a real snake in the world somewhere. Similarly, if you are mistaking Brahman for the world, uh, then there must be a real world. Otherwise, where would you get this idea of a world body, mind, world, where, where do these ideas come from, if Brahman is the only existence? So these are big questions. We'll deal with them next time. Shankara answers all of those uh, in the succeeding lines. Priya Kulkarni says, we have to, first is we have to, have a, we have to admit it's a mistake. Baby puzzled when she discovered she has feet. Amanda says, our first introduction to having a body when brought into this world. True, but also remember, according to Vedanta, we are ancient creatures. Even the baby we have been around many times and many times. So it's just a new rediscovery of having a body. Priya says, de-superimposition is peeling the onion. Yes, that's the next part of it. But first you have to admit that there is an onion. You have to admit, you have to prove that there is a mistake. The dualist, the materialist says, no mistake. Here is a real world. Here is a body. Here is a mind. You are a person and you are suffering. Deal with it. There's no, nothing to be done. <laughs> You're trapped here. Shubhrata says, knowledge of non-self helps remove the superimposition. True. You have to know uh, the non-self as the non-self. Not nonsense. Non-self. Body is not the self. Mind is not the self. You have to know them. Adhyasa Bhashya is a great demotivator. If you stick to it, I'm going to do a very quick look into Adhyasa Bhashya over the next few classes. But if you do a thorough job of it, it can take um, um, dozens of classes, dozens of classes, just to go through two or three pages of Adhyasabhasha. Every line, especially this first line, has so many commentaries, sub-commentaries, subtle discussions. Uh, every word of it has been debated over for uh, nearly a thousand years because it's a huge, huge issue. None of the other schools of Vedanta or other schools of Hindu philosophy accept this, this uh, what Advaita Vedanta wants to say. So they fight it tooth and nail. Um, 
They, they are very straightforward. All the other schools, all the other schools have a simple take on it. You are just this person, a sentient being. There is a God of this universe. Take refuge in God. Love God. Surrender to God. God will help you out of this. That's it. You can't do anything about it. Where Shankara says, no, there is something even deeper than God. And that's your real nature. And you can investigate it and be free of it right now, right here. In fact, you already are free of it. It's a mistake that you think you're bound. So that's really extraordinary about Advaita Vedanta. Why do people go to the hospital for treatment of body? Correct. This is Adhyasa. This is classic. This is Shankara would be delighted with you. Body is not you. But we think I am the body. Shankara has said, Ahamidam mamedam. I am this. This is my. I am the body. Or if I'm not the body, the body is mine. Hence, I'm rushing to the ER for treatment because I am in pain. It seems obvious to me. I don't even question it. And Shankara is here questioning it. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu